This morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Fishers of men. Fishers of men. In today's passage, which we'll come to shortly, amongst other things we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in a fishing boat and whilst he was sitting in a fishing boat he was teaching people who were on the seashore. Also Jesus spoke to the ship's captain, Simon, and he instructed him to go into deeper water and let down the nets. Simon duly complied and his nets were filled with fishes. I've already mentioned this last time we met and I'll mention it again to avoid any confusion. Simon, in our passage, is one and the same man as Peter, the Apostle Peter, same person. If you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 14, you'll see that to be the case. You'll see that Jesus named Simon Peter when he appointed him to be one of the apostles. Let's have a look at chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. Verse 13, that can't be right. It is, if I, I'm still in Isaiah here. Chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and so on. So there you have it. Simon, he named Peter. (coughs) Okay, let's look at our passage for today now. Luke chapter 5, I'm reading from verse 1. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, He stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth 
thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. First of all, we can see the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in the first three verses that the congregation assembled on the seashore and Jesus, he used a a fishing boat, reasonable to say a smelly fishing boat, as a pulpit from which to preach the word of God to the congregation. You could contrast that scene with the vision that the prophet Isaiah had of the Son of God over 700 years earlier. I read it to you earlier, didn't I? Think of the contrast. We've got Jesus in our passage in a fishing boat. And in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, the prophet said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. John chapter 12 verse 41 confirms that Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and spoke of his glory. We're not left to speculate. We're told very clearly in John's Gospel that that was a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. As for now, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated on the right hand of the majesty on high, having endured the cross where he had the iniquity of all who would ever trust in him laid upon him. I I never cease to be amazed at that, that the Lord, in other words, God laid upon his son the iniquity of all who would trust in him. And I I say that because I want people to realise that we didn't do a swap with Jesus. When he gave us his righteousness, we didn't give him our sin. We didn't do anything. Jesus was put to death on the cross. He laid down his life on the cross long before you and I were born. The Lord laid upon him your iniquity, dear Christian. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for your sins at the cross. And now he's seated in heaven, highly exalted, given a name which is above every name. When Jesus was in the world, he made himself of no reputation and he took upon himself the form of a lowly servant, as can be seen in our passage, and ultimately as can be seen at the cross we need to appreciate that the one who was sitting in that fishing boat proclaiming the riches of God's grace and his abundant mercy towards hell-deserving sinners was none other than than the incarnate creator God who have made all things and without him was not anything made that has been made. The humility that can be seen in that fishing boat characterized the Lord Jesus Christ, who in deep humility, he also touched lepers. He cast out evil spirits. He washed his apostles' dirty and dusty feet and so much more besides. 
Ultimately, as has been said, Jesus sacrificially laid down his life as an atonement for sin. Secondly, we can consider Simon's obedience. We'll look at verses 4 and 5. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. The Lord Jesus Christ By trade, he was what? He was a carpenter, wasn't he? After Joseph. Joseph, who was presumed to be his father, was a carpenter. And so too was Jesus. And there he was, Jesus the carpenter, telling Simon, who was a professional fisherman, how to catch fish. Can you imagine that? Add to that the fact that Simon had been up all night long And so he must have been tired, cold, fed up, ready to go home to bed. Yet he obeyed the Lord's instruction to launch out into the deep and let down his nets for a draught, even though it probably made no sense at all to him at the time. He was simply doing as he was told to do. Another one who obeyed God without questioning him was Abraham about 2,000 years earlier. The Lord called called Abraham out of his father's house and out of his homeland of Mesopotamia and told him to go to a land that the Lord would show him and he would make him a great nation and in him and his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed think about all of that I know we weren't there but you know when I was first I can remember this clearly I've told you all this before I tend people tend to repeat themselves as as they get older and I most certainly do especially when it's relevant when I was seeking sitting at the poolside in the Algarve really happy that I'd finally got through university I hadn't received my results, but I pretty much knew I'd passed. And I treated myself to a holiday in the Algarve. I was reading Genesis at the poolside. I'd become fascinated with the Word of God. I can remember sitting at that poolside, reading about Abraham being called by God out of the Ur of the Chaldees, out of his father's house, away from his family, being told to go to a land that God would show him. And I went on that journey with Abraham. And Abraham didn't know where he was going, and nor did I. (laughs) But that was obedience on the part of Abraham. Although he didn't know where he was going. Generally speaking, it's easy to be obedient when it suits us. Let's be honest with ourselves here. If we can see the end result and that and of that obedience rather, and if that end result is desirable, very easy to be obedient then, isn't it? 
And that applies equally to obedience towards the word of God. I'm talking to all of us here, including those of us who have been Christians for a good number of years. Oh yes, how easy it is to be obedient to God when we know where it's leading us to. And we know that where it's leading us to in the short term is desirable. We can be very obedient, especially if we don't have to come out of our comfort zones and if we know that the obedience will be non-confrontational and so on. If it ticks all our boxes. However, as has been seen with Simon and Abraham, trusting in God, doing his will, can involve stepping out of comfort zones. It can involve stepping forward, not understanding. Yeah, I was hesitating then, but not understanding. Believing doesn't always mean understanding. Going back to Mary again, when she was told that she would conceive and give birth. She didn't really understand, but she sure did believe. And that's the thing, to believe in God, to trust in him and his promises, even if we don't really understand at the time. And that can involve stepping out of comfort zones, stepping forward in faith, in the absence of any clear information about what will happen, whether that outcome will be desirable or not in the short term. I say that because ultimately, if you're a Christian, the outcome is way beyond what we can imagine, isn't it? Being with Jesus, beholding his glory, The Bible tells us that he is altogether lovely. And one day we shall behold that loveliness, that beauty, that purity. But the outcome's not always desirable for us now when we're obedient to God. I don't suppose for one moment that when the Lord said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down thy nets for a draught, that Simon had the faintest idea that his nets would be filled and that he would very soon forsake all and follow Jesus. Maybe I've, maybe I'm wrong. I am guessing after all, but I, I just don't imagine that he would have, that would have entered his mind. If you're someone who, despite being here this morning, is not trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, then there is only one thing at the moment that you can and you must do in obedience to God. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 tells you to repent and to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I can tell you actually, from my own experience, and other Christians can tell you, that that act of obedience does lead 
to a very desirable outcome. It leads to you being forgiven all your sins and having a hope that goes way beyond the, the, the things of this world. A hope that reaches up to heaven. Although in the short term, that obedience may not lead to a walk in the park at all. It may lead to being slandered, persecuted, for some people even being put to death. But it's worth it. And it's something that you ought to do, you must do. There is one name under heaven given unto men whereby we must be saved. No pretty pleas about it. We must be saved. The name of Jesus. Crying out to God for mercy. Receiving his son. Not giving him your sins, as I've already said. Trusting in him as the one who bear your sins in his body at the cross. That is the most important act of obedience ever. Thirdly, Simon, from fisherman to fisher of men. At the beginning of our passage, whilst the people pressed against the Lord to hear the word of God, what was Simon doing? According to verse 2, let's have a look at verse 2. And saw, well take it from verse 1 again. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, upon Jesus, to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. So you've got these fishermen, they're, they're, they're on the seashore, busy washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little, and so on. So what was Simon doing at the time? Washing his nets. However, soon afterwards, in verse 10, the Lord Jesus Christ said to him, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Simon was anything but an evangelist at first. Busy washing his nets while Jesus was preaching and teaching the multitude there on the seashore. But that would all change. So much so that on the day of Pentecost, soon after Jesus had ascended to heavenly glory, Simon Peter preached a powerful uh, gospel sermon in which he boldly and outrightly accused the Jews of crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he said. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
whom God have raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. On that day, the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 Jews gladly received his word and were baptised, having been pricked in their hearts from what they heard from Peter. They were brought to repentance at what they'd done in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. What can be said about Simon? Well, at first, his priority was to catch fish that would soon be die and would end up on the dinner plate. However, by the grace of God, his priority changed to him catching humans who, having been dead in their trespasses and sins, would be raised up to everlasting life as new creatures in Christ. The Apostle Paul was another one whose priority was to proclaim the riches of God's grace to helpless and hopeless sinners. But it had not always been like that for Paul, had it? You see, Simon Peter here, he was a fisherman, busy cleaning, washing out his nets. That was his priority in the early days, catching fish to make a living. What about Paul, the great apostle Paul. Before he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as a repentant sinner, his name was Saul. He was a religious Jew, a Pharisee, and he was an arch enemy of Christ and his church. I'll just read some snippets from Acts of the Apostles concerning Saul, who was to become the apostle Paul. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. As many of you probably already know, it was whilst Saul was on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to round up Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, whilst he was on the road to Damascus, that God graciously saved him by his grace, saved him from his sins, and consequently, having previously been an absolute terror to the church, the Apostle Paul went on to say to the church in Corinth, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He also said to the Corinthians, I determined not to know anything amongst you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. What about you, dear Christian? This is where we get to you. Do you ever fish for men, women, boys and girls with the good news of Jesus? In answer to that, you may be thinking, Simon and Paul were called by Jesus to be his apostles. I'm not. 
you might insist that evangelism is not your forte. It's not your gifting. That as may be, but what saith the scriptures? In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Therefore, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you follow Jesus, having received him as your saviour from sin and your Lord, you have the light of life. You have the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. You really do. In practice, what that means is that as the moon reflects the sunlight, you are to reflect the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's face it, no one other than a Christian is going to be a light in this dark world of sin. A world in which people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Think about it logically here. Who other than Christians are going to be lights in the darkness of this world? No one. No one at all. Not a single person other than someone who follows Jesus and has the light of life. And so it is that if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, not I, but Jesus says to you, ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. As to what it means to let your light so shine before men, how about this? You are to be conspicuous. You are to be clearly visible. You are to speak up against evil. You are to boldly confess divine truth. You are to seek God's enabling grace to practice what you preach in the life that you now live by faith of the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you. You are to be prepared to suffer ridicule, slander, persecution, loss of material possessions and even loss of your life for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Only this morning when I was eating my breakfast I was thinking, you've got all these religions in the world and generally speaking people know that's a Muslim for obvious reasons or that's a Hindu, again for obvious reasons. Normally people who have religion, who worship the God of this world ultimately, the devil, you can see that they are what they are. But Christians, they don't have a uniform, do they? We don't go around with uh, anything that would give a clue to people that we are Christians. So really, we can, we can hide our light under the bushel very easily, can't we? So much so that people would not have a clue that we are followers of Jesus. How often is that the case and the reality with Christians? 
but we are to be lights in this dark world of sin. It's not optional. If you are to be a faithful witness for Jesus and radiate his light, it's as well to have a grasp of fundamental Bible truth. I'm talking about when you are witnessing to people now. I say that because it's going to be far more effective, your witness will be far more witness uh, effective rather, if you are able to say to those whom you are witnessing to, the word of God tells us whatever it tells us. Don't be scared of the word of God. Don't try and hide it or disguise it. People are saved by the word of God. Not by your clever little illustrations and your clever little stories. It's the word of God which the people need to hear. And so that is what you ought to be doing if you are a follower of Jesus in your witness. The word of God tells us, boom, 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 whatever it is you want to say. And that is far better than to say, well, I think, and then come out with your thoughts, your wisdom. I once heard it said that not all theologians are Christians, but all Christians ought to be theologians. How true that is. I'll say it again. Not all theologians are Christians, but all Christians ought to be theologians. We ought to have a grasp of the scriptures, sufficient that we can at least speak to people with the authority of the word of God and not with our own blessed thoughts. Last of all, I would like to consider how Simon reacted to his nets being miraculously filled with a great multitude of fishes. Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That was by no means Simon's first encounter with Jesus, but what can be seen in this verse is Simon a self-confessed sinful man brought low and he was completely overwhelmed as he came to a heightened awareness that he was in the presence of the Holy One of God. Simon was acknowledging his wretchedness and his unworthiness to be in the presence of holiness. Spurgeon said the following about Simon. Not knowing what he said, though he knew what he meant, feeling as if he, so sinful, had come too close to the Lord, who was so gracious, so he must not dare to keep near to him. Have you never felt the same as that? If not, methinks you have neither known your Lord nor yet yourselves, for the knowledge of Christ combined with the knowledge of ourselves, is sure to produce this holy shrinking in which we have no need for anyone to say to us, put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For we are almost ready to put off our very body 
for we can scarcely bear the glory of the presence of the Lord. That's how it ought to be when we are in the presence of holiness and we are aware, painfully aware, of our own wretchedness. We shrink in his presence. Or at least we ought to. In the Old Testament, a man whose name was Job was another one who was acutely conscious of his sinfulness when he was in the presence of the holy and righteous God. Job said, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I should imagine that Simon felt much the same. I mentioned earlier that the prophet Isaiah had a vision in which he saw the Lord Jesus Christ sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What I didn't mention earlier was that he also saw seraphims, angel, angelic beings, covering their faces in the presence of the Lord and saying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Think of Simon on that fishing boat, falling down at the knees of Jesus in self-loathing and in godly fear. Think also of Job who said, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And think of those sinless angels in heaven covering their faces in the Lord's presence. Now contrast those thoughts and those actions with the attitude and the conduct of the rulers of the earth who, here we go again, here I go again, who openly defy the Lord with wicked laws that violate God's holy laws. For example, and I always come to this because it is the prime example of just how wicked our rulers are. They classify baby killing as women's health care. And even though we are to love our neighbours as ourselves, can you imagine that? A pregnant woman's closest neighbour is surely the baby in her womb. And yet there are laws which allow the, the, the mutilation and the murder of unborn babies. And our rulers enact laws that permit same-sex marriage, even though God has declared homosexuality to be an abomination, to be detestable. Let's say it as it is. That's not to put people down. But this is it. This is the word of God. And there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness for homosexual offenders. Forgiveness for, for thieves. Forgiveness for lying lips. That's another abomination to the Lord. Lying lips. Forgiveness for drunkards. Forgiveness to those who harbour evil thoughts. Angry thoughts in their hearts towards others. Forgiveness to people who look at others with lust in their eyes. Forgiveness for this, that and the other. Forgiveness for all of us. 
through faith in Jesus. We don't just think of the rulers and their wicked laws. Think also of people generally who despise Jesus. They esteem him not. And his holy name is nothing more than a swear word upon their lips. I wonder which category do you fit into? I ask that because the day will dawn when there will be no more days thereafter. On that final day, Jesus will come in judgment. He will sit upon the throne of his glory. Every knee shall bow before him. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who will be cast into everlasting fire People who have never trusted in Jesus as their saviour from sin and their Lord, they will give him the glory due unto his name. They will prostrate themselves before, before him. Don't wait until then. Now is the time to fall down before Jesus. Do I mean that literally? No, but I would be prepared if I thought that that's what it took. I would demonstrate it for you right now. Because I, I'm telling you, you do whatever you are to do in order to receive forgiveness. Never mind what anyone else says. Never mind if people think you're mad as a hatter. You do what you're to do. You bow down before Jesus, acknowledging his holiness, that he is the Holy One of God, that he did come down to earth 2,000 years ago where he bears sin in his own body at the cross. Wake up, if you haven't already done so, to this reality. Don't go another day without Jesus. How foolish that would be. Forget this world. This world is dying. This world is on a downward spiral. The God of this world is the devil. But you know what? God himself, he takes people, repentant sinners, he takes people out of the devil's dark domain and he transfers them into the kingdom of his dear son. And that's a wonderful thing. For all that's going on in this world, I can say on the authority of scripture, and I can show you where those scriptures are, I can tell you that I am a priest of the Most High God. Not just me as a pastor here, but all those who follow Jesus are priests of the Most High God. They belong to a holy nation. Their citizenship is in heaven. Amen to that? How wonderful it is. How wonderful So, don't wait until Jesus comes again. Now is the time to fall prostrate, to fall down before Jesus, the Holy One of God, 
confessing your unworthiness as a hell-deserving sinner, but nevertheless believing that by his life of perfect obedience and by his sacrificial death on the cross, he is worthy and he is able, he alone is able to present you faultless and with exceeding joy before the presence of the glory of God. Amen.